everyone. Welcome back to Adventures in DevOps. We hope that you are safe and healthy wherever you are. I am Nell Shamrell Harrington. I am an engineer at Mozilla and one of the hosts of the Adventure in Adventures in DevOps podcast. And with me are two of my other hosts, uh, Tyler and Jeff. Tyler, how's it going? That's going pretty good. Uh, we just got moved into our new house here in Utah. Uh, even with everything going on, we were able to finally close and get in. So that's been exciting for us. Congratulations. And yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm a platform, senior platform engineer at Cengage and, um, you know, all things cloud and that kind of stuff that we talked about last week, this week, anytime are things that I'm always excited to talk about. And, and I'm looking forward to talking to Baruch uh, this week about uh, continuous updates. All right. <laughs> Yeah, I'm uh, Jeff Groman. Um, I do cybersecurity consulting for my own company. And um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited to be back. Uh, nothing too exciting for me. We didn't move or anything else, but uh, it's just good to be, to be back with you guys and talking about really interesting things. This episode is sponsored by Gravitational. As your team and cloud infrastructure grows, you may want to reevaluate how you access SSH servers and Kubernetes clusters. Gravitational Teleport is an emerging open source replacement for OpenSSH, which was built for modern cloud workflows. Teleport is opinionated. It does not allow SSH keys, and instead it insists on certificate-based authentication, making it dead easy to set up and use. Teleport is fully compatible with your SSH and Kubernetes tooling, comes with a beautiful web UI and an audit log, and it allows users to access servers outside of data centers like IoT devices. It was called Teleport because it creates the illusion that all your company's servers are in the same room with you, even if some of them are self-driving vehicles. Download Teleport on gravitational.com slash teleport or find it on github.com slash gravitational slash teleport. Awesome. Well, we have a great uh, guest with us today. Uh, Baruch, tell us about yourself. Uh, hey, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm uh, very excited to be on this podcast with, with this great panel. Uh, my name is Baruch. I am uh, Chief Sticker Officer at JFrog, which means I go to conferences and give away stickers, but also Head of DevOps Advocacy. So um, I try to convince people that DevOps is good and Liquid Software is great and continuous updates are the next big thing. I'm going to do this experiment on you, Fox, and we'll see how it goes. All right. Uh, we got experiments uh, live on the podcast this week. That's fantastic. Well, the uh, topic for today is uh, continuous delivery, continuous updates, and I—I I, this is the, the when I was looking you up, this is the first time I've heard this phrase, liquid software. Uh, yeah. Baruch, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, liquid software is is kind of a. It's a, it's a vision that one of uh, Jeffrey co-founders, Fred Simon, came up with um, when he was talking about how we need to accelerate the continuous delivery and the continuous deployment and how we need to uh, transition from bulky and rare updates into tiny and frequent ones, so tiny and so frequent that there is an illusion that the software actually flows from the developers all the way to the users. And this is almost looks like the software is liquid. So that was, that was the, this is, this is the term, this is where liquid software kind of represents. And the technology of making it happen is what we call continuous updates. 
it kind of makes me think continuous updates of uh, something like a uh, liquid plumber, uh, uh, loosening up all the, uh, the, the stoppages in your uh, continuous delivery system. Exactly, exactly. And continuous updates is, is obviously a continuation of other continuous things. Um, it's, it's a lot like continuous deployment, I would say, with, um, uh, I think the technology is, is, is pretty much uh, comparable is just the accents are on on a little bit different things. So I mean, obviously, if you hear Jess Humble speaking about continuous delivery, and uh, that, that will be uh, the same, basically the same, the same pitch and the same concept. But we kind of, uh, if you wish, I'll take another analogy. So DevSecOps, DevSecOps is is a marketing term. There is no DevSecOps. There is DevOps that includes everything. It includes the dev, the ops, the, the QA, the product, and obviously the security. But since, as we learned in the first, like what, seven years of DevOps, people really think dev and ops because there is everything that you have in the name, we kind of went ahead and, and, and came up with these marketing terms, DevSecOps, which you know what, DevOps is about security, and here is a term that actually highlights it. And it's a little bit the same with continuous updates. You can say, you know what, continuous delivery actually covers it all. You don't need a special term for updates, but the term continuous updates, it's, it's there to stress that updating the software is very different from deploying the software from, from zero. And when you think about it, I don't know 90, how many, 95, 92, 90% of the times, instead of deploying a new software, you actually update an existing software, which comes with its own uh, problems, with their own semantics. And this is what continuous updates is supposed to stress on top of everything important and basic that continuous delivery and deployment bring to us. Does it make sense? It does indeed. Uh, Jeff, with your security experience, I'm, I'm very curious what you're thinking. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the idea is so interesting to me. Um, I mean, clearly, you know, the, the thing that comes to mind, I think, is, um, Baruch, you had a, you had a really interesting um, comment, I think, at, at one of your previous talks, where you were talking about like the Equifax breach, for instance. And I think about that one a lot. Um, and you know, when you think about where an underlying library is vulnerable and you look at it from, from the, um, the attacker's perspective, they're going to build tools to be able to find instances of this and they were able to find it with Equifax. But the reverse side was if you're trying to manage all of that infrastructure and probably, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of pieces of discrete software and the infrastructure that's writing on and all that, trying to find that needle in a haystack is just so incredibly difficult. Um, and then if you think about it, the idea of automating updates and, oh, you know, I'm a piece of, you know, strut software and I realize that, hey, there's a new update, I can just go down and grab it. Wow, you just solved that problem instantly. And so the concept of it is so appealing. Um, but I'm curious, like, you know, but then obviously there has to be a lot to back that up because that's that's not an easy so, solution to put in place. 
Yeah, so uh, first of all, you, you're obviously right. When we are talking about security vulnerabilities and how to fight them, we're talking about um, a couple of steps, actually three, right? You need to identify the threat, you need to fix it, and then you need to update what's running in production with this fix. And they are very different in their nature, uh, so different that it actually people with completely different uh, uh, skill set is taking care of it, right? So I, I know almost nothing about identifying a security threat and probably not enough uh, for, for creating a fix for the security threat. But I definitely know that 90% of the code that we are now deploying in production is actually not our code. It's the dependencies on some level or another. And for that matter, uh, the Windows XP that runs on your Edge device that you never updated and now is exploitable um, is your dependency that you didn't update, right? So, so in the end of the day, most of the software running is, is a third-party dependencies and being able to update those dependencies is a very big part of this game of beating the security threat. So, um, to, so this is why it's critical for security as well. And regarding what it takes, the good news are that we are already at least 20 years into how do we shorten the feedback loop all the way back to 97, 98, all the way back to extreme programming. Let's make the loop as short as possible. And in those 20, more than 20 years, we came up with great tools. We came up with great automation. We came up with the concept of pipelines. We came up with the concept of quality gates. And then we go and automate it piece by piece, making it uh, replacing more and more human uh, slow error-prone interaction with faster, more reliable machines and this is how we can move forward and make it uh, easier to build this pipeline that will be able to breach to uh, sorry to to patch whatever being breached as fast as possible yeah i think i agree with that i think there has been a lot of progress that is made and um it comes from the theoretical and then it goes into the practical right um we learn from the mistakes we're making, you know, with anti-patterns and then we establish new patterns by trying something new and deciding this works. So that's a new pattern. Um, but it, makes, it gets me thinking about like, what obstacles have you faced for companies that are still lagging behind in trying to, for, for whatever reason, you know, if it's technical issue, if it's a, a re human resource issue, you know, because we're all resources, we're not people. Um, uh, what, where do you begin for a place that is entrenched and large enough, large enough to, to require this process, but hasn't even started yet? Yeah, so I would say there are two different, two main objections to, to the automation in general. And obviously, that's kind of, that's the main requirement for, for continuous anything, including continuous updates. And obviously, without pipes, there cannot be a flow of liquid software. There can only be a spill or a puddle of software, but not but not a flow. And um, and the, the objections are it, it is an overkill. Like we are three people startup, we have a, a very simple app that we are doing. We all know what's going on. We don't really need to automate 
anything yet. And there is some merit to that, right? Because in the end of the day, the, the scale is a scale, right? So you, you, you go, you progress in baby steps. You don't try to build the ocean. You don't try to build the most um, scalable, automated pipeline uh, world ever. So if all you do is an application that is simple or the, the other opposite never never been updated right there is a, it's a, it's a backend application that five people use it once in a quarter and it was last updated 10 years ago and it just works so just leave it alone it works but uh, uh, so this is kind of the we don't need it it's much more limited that you would expect and it's much more and it's getting more and more limited as the automation and the pipelines become more and more approachable because, well, I understand that you don't want to invest much, but look, it's all there, it's all in the cloud, it's all free, it's all one-click setup. So what that you are three people and you can deal without it? Take it and you will be more productive and easier to scale. So this, although a valid argument, kind of uh, disappears more and more. The other one is, well, we cannot automate whatever unique situation we are because our requirements are so unique, so complex, so uh, regulated, pick whatever you are, whatever excuse of the day that those people have I, I to was going to bring that up. Yeah. I've, I've had some experience in highly secure environments and uh, you hear that a lot. Uh, uh, right, so wh whatever, whatever you like and in the end of the day, uh, it will be, um, uh, we cannot do that. Well, this also has some merit, but as the previous one, this merit disappears under our, our hands. Because uh, first of all, in terms of, oh, we just cannot automate those tests. They require human thinking, um, which it's the same actually as, well, we cannot automate this release. It requires um, regulation. Both of them are looking at the problem from a very outdated angle. And the reply for both of them, or, or, uh, although they look very different, but it's actually the same, is stop paying attention to a single release, a single version, a single, um, a single deployment that you do, instead invest in the pipeline. So for example, what we hear a lot is, well, we cannot automate the release because we have regulation which requires us to test each and every release. Well, this is not what it requires. It requires showing that you pay attention to certain things. This is what regulation is all about. And if you are able to show that your pipeline now does the things that require to be done for this regulation. This is perfectly fine with all the regulators. They don't care what you do as long as you can show the attestations that were made in the process. Whether you do it manually, attestate the release, or you do it automatically with the pipeline that was already attestated, no one really cares. And it's the same for the tests. Instead of testing the end product, instead of testing each and every release, just 
look at the pipeline and see how you can build those tests into the pipeline. And the tools, again, exist. Exploratory testing. People laugh at this term and say, well, that's just a fancy name to, uh, to, to call manual QA. Well, it is not. The difference is huge. Conceptually, manual QA is about looking at each and every release. Exploratory testing is the way that you prepare the automation. So yes, the action might be similar. You look at the, the, the UI or whatever and see how you can break it, but the goal is completely different. Instead of saying, well, this particular piece of release is okay, you do exploratory testing in order to automate it being part of the pipeline and never doing it manually again. Have you thought about learning to do native iOS development? Are you using Swift at work? Or maybe you've considered writing applications for macOS. We have a podcast that covers all of that called iFreaks. We have a new panel and a lot of exciting things to talk about. So come check us out at iFreaksShow.com. I uh, recently heard a, a method of testing, which I, I hadn't considered before, but it's called, I think it's fuzzing where you use automated tools just to throw the most random stuff at your functions and seeing, you know, is there an overflow? Uh, does, it, does it fail to parse this thing? It's really useful in C++. And I'll let you in on a secret, it's useful in Rust too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. A, a very good anecdote about fuzzy testing and where it actually breaks is this tweet about uh, how a tester uh, walks into the bar uh, I don't know if you heard about it or so it on Twitter. So Which one? To the bar, orders one beer, orders a hundred beers, orders minus one beer, orders a lizard, right? So this is fine and this is fuzzy testing and it's very easy to automate and there are a lot of tools that are doing it already. What it doesn't do is, okay, so the tester leaves the bar and then the customer walks into the bar, asks where the restrooms are, and everything goes up in flames, right? Because, and, and this is, cannot be done by fuzzy testing. This is where human um, abilities come into play. And this is where the, the opponents of automation can say, well, no, this we cannot automate, right? So that what I heard is, well, here's an example where, where you cannot automate your release. But this is what the explanatory testing does. Because yes, the tester actually uh, interacts with the customer and they come up with this uh, a person when to or goes uh, ask where the restroom is everything goes up in flames on the level of your explanatory testing which is a part of your development but then the test for the restrooms is baked into the pipeline again and um, and this test uh, is already automated we don't need this spreadsheet to check for the restrooms ever again yeah, that's really good. Um, so kind of recapping, my question was like, where do you begin? Uh, and what you've been saying was start small, uh, keep it simple. And I think one of the things I was thinking about as you were mentioning um, just the regular problem solving is the this book that I would probably nominate as one of my picks today, um, which is It's Not About the Shark. And um, it the it starts with the story about Jaws and how in the film Jaws, they basically were not able to make the shark look scary or real. It looked really fake and laughable, like campy, you know, and it, they weren't going for campy, they were going for a horror movie. And so 
what uh, Steven Spielberg, they, they, you know, the cliche is they thought outside of the box. And so outside of the box thinking led them to, well, what if we never show the shark? What if we don't show the shark as much as possible? And so I think that kind of ties back into what you were saying, which is you have to come up with out of the box or random thinking, um, which le- kind of leads me into this other question, which is uh, from your talk that we'll, we'll put a link to that was most recently at a, a Velocity Conf, I believe, that you, you linked to us or that we had in our show notes. Uh, you talked about how Boeing uh, had a bug in their, their, their airline and their 777s and 787s, that if you didn't reboot the plane every 149 hours, um, it basically could stall or it, could, it would crash or it would have a problem. And so uh, essentially how, what they ended up doing is you know, getting the, all of the techs on the plane and while they're up in the air, saying, uh, simulating the problem. And what that meant to me was, how do you get people to get a stake in the game? So that's how do we do that? Yes. Yes. How do we get people to get a stake in their game when um, a lot of people just work nine to five and it's like, oh, if, if nothing's on fire, then I don't really have to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And then that brings, that brings me to, to the bigger problem. And the bigger problem is, as usual, people, right? People that that don't want to, and and uh, it's bigger concept in the bigger um, uh, kind of a set of problems. It's not about liquid software. It's not about continuous updates. It's it's what DevOps tries to solve, and and uh, this is where DevOps is struggling, right? In the end of the day, the dawn of DevOps engineers, which is just renamed sysadmins is because in the end of the day, the idea that dev and ops should collaborate failed. And what we left, uh, left uh, with is the dev, which are still in their silo and don't want to collaborate, and the DevOps engineers, which are in their silo and they're just renamed and glorified system administrators. And what I learned today that there is a new movement called Dev DevOps. And this is a collaboration between developers and DevOps engineers. So we're going to try again, right? <laughs> and 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 the problem sounds like we've come full circle here. We did, and and the problem is because people don't want to accept the fact that they have to work together for for many reasons. They don't want from one side they don't want the the responsibility. Um, oh, I don't want to be on call on three a.m. Let's DevOps engineers do it. From the other side, they they uh, afraid to lose control. Well, we cannot uh, let developers run Amok in production. They are going to ruin everything. And and people feel comfortable in their comfort zone. This is their expertise. They know how to do it. I don't want to learn Kubernetes. It's not. It's an ops domain. Let do, let them do it. And from the other side. I don't want to learn uh, um, uh, what it is, Python, for be able to work with Ansible. I'm not a developer. I don't care. So, and, and this is human's problem, and it probably should have human solutions, and uh, there are great people that are doing it. Unfortunately, I'm definitely not one of them. I still didn't elevate from the when I know how to command the machines because the machines are short feedback and uh, predictable, right? and uh, deterministic, sorry, and humans are exactly the opposite, non-deterministic and uh, 
un, you know, undefined feedback. So I, I really envy people that can manipulate people well enough in order to make them play together. And uh, I really hope one day I will learn how to do that. So far, I just observe from the far and being terrified about how mediocre people are comparing to machines in those in those domains of playing together, collaborating and doing the right thing. Uh, manipulating people is a skill and it can be for either good or evil or something Obviously. in the middle. The people who can do it for good are amazing. I think whoever can do it can do it for both. And the decision if you do it for good or for evil comes from other set of beliefs and not necessarily the skills to manipulate. That's for sure. Yeah, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I think we've talked about this before too, but, you know, it seems like the organizations, the companies that are doing this well are the ones that are really sort of um, taking on agile thought, agile practice uh, methodology and it's not just within devs, it's not just within ops, it's within the organization. And if it's not being pushed from an organizational level, like those human factors, like they don't change, you're right, that they're not gonna change on their own unless the organizational, you know, like the culture of the organization is pushing them to say, hey, we gotta do things differently because it's the only way that we're going to survive and thrive and all that. Uh, I mean, I, I see that from the security side where, you know, a lot of us in the, from security really want to get, um, not just dev, but all the testers out there to think about, you know, your automated testing, start to think about, you know, use cases and abuse cases. Uh, we talk about those all the time, like automate those. You know, you're talking about fuzz, <clears throat> fuzzing and fuzz testing before. You know, we do that all the time where, you know, a good example is we're testing like a web app. So you'll start to throw stuff at, you know, the UI just to see, hey, where's the filtering happening? Is it happening you know, on the browser, or is it happening, you know, you know, back of the server, we want to understand that so we can understand, you know, where can we start to do some interesting things. Um, but a lot of that can be, and again, you know, you get a tester to do it once or twice, as long as the UI hasn't changed, then that automated testing still works. Um, and, and again, you know, I, I don't want to um, belabor this, but it's just, it's interesting how some organizations really sort of take that on. Um, and really get testers saying, yeah, let's do that. Let's, let's automate this. Let's, you know, let's do a better job of what we're doing and add in more cases and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And some of them really sort of drag their feet and like, nope, you know, we're going to do things the way that we've always been doing them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, uh, we have some ways to make technology more appealing for people to step into the trap of doing what they not necessarily want to do right? Uh, and you can kind of lure them into doing the right thing. But, but I, it also, it's, it's funny how everything interconnected. Uh, I think that it also goes into my other passion and area of expertise, which is developer relations. Uh, because in the end of the day, good organizations um, manage to attract good people by expressing how good they are and how people are going to enjoy it. All the Netflixes, if you wish, in the industry, they're great in developer relations because they talk about freedom and responsibility. They talk about how they do, do, do DevOps. And then obviously the brightest and the best want to work there, which makes them even better. And this is, in the end of the day, an evolutionary process. The good are getting better, the bad are getting worse. And in the end of the day, they will just be 
run out of the market by the competition if your competitor delivers software faster and provides better security and do it with uh, less costs just because they have better people that were attracted because we managed to, uh, um, to, to express how good the company is in the end of the day. This is an evolutionary process. So I have an interesting question. I've, I've posed this a couple of times as more of a rhetorical question previously on our podcast, but I really feel like you could shed some light onto this. Uh, what size of an organization or um, software product do you think uh, ops rather than just DevOps comes into the picture? Meaning you have a startup and it's just a handful of guys and basically you, you don't throw it over the wall. Everyone, everyone picks it up and carries it over the wall together to begin. But eventually you start to evolve. How big does a team or uh, software organization to be before they, they actually start to um, full-time employee ops people? Yeah, so that's, uh, that's a great question. We actually have another talk which is very related and have actually an answer. I wouldn't argue that it's the right answer, but it has an answer to exactly that question. It's called uh, DevOps at Scale, Greek Tragedy in Three Acts. Um, it's, it's actually a Greek strategy where um, we are dressed in togs, uh, in togas and everything. And it's strategy because as it should in Greek strategy, everybody dies when you get to a certain scale with DevOps. <laughs> and uh, um, and uh, the way it's structured is that we present a typical size of team starting with three engineers and then going to, th to 30 and then going to 100. And in some of them, there is like, oh, we hired an ops engineer. And uh, usually when we do it in, de in DevOps conferences, everybody go like, boo, DevOps is not having DevOps engineers and everything. And then we actually explain about how DevOps is not about not having ops engineer. It's actually the specialization stance and we need T-shaped people with this put in the ops as well because someone needs to understand what this Kubernetes hell is doing. And those are the ops engineers. They are just an empowered teams, part of the team. And this is, and this is DevOps, not, not having them. And um, uh, I am, this is, uh, in our example, it was the, th the R&D of 30. And uh, this is where we had like one or two, again, people, uh, ops folks that understand how, how the infrastructure works. Um, in our example, JFrog, we are now, I would say, if I remember correctly, about 200 um, people in the R&D, and we have an infrastructure team, again, distributed among uh, empowered teams, uh, but, you know, with the, with the ops hat on, uh, on them, I think we have probably around seven. So I would say it's one to 30, which kind of relates to one person to a 13 team in our talk. So um, it, actually, it actually makes sense. Um, I would say that's pretty much the number, but it, it can actually be even much more spectacular. So we have huge customers with tens of thousands of, 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 of people in R&D and the infrastructure people of like 10. And this is like super impressive. And one of the reasons we are, we are able to do that is, is automation. Yeah, at first when you said that, I thought, I thought the opposite. I mean, I had a cynical reaction, which was only having ten people. They they don't have they haven't adopted the mentality. But 
um, idealistically, you know, they can do it with, with automation and the tools. Um, do you think that in order to reduce down to that level, they then have to have excellence in what they do Absolutely. or reached a certain, um, a certain level? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's it's it's a lot about um, it's a very deep specialization, right? And and it's not everybody are capable to keep the T shape while going so deep into into one domain. And those are obviously the best. But again, considering who the companies that I'm talking about, we know all of us know about those companies that they do hire the best. So it's kind of it's it's not surprising. For if we are talking about like if you want to look at the average in the industry, I would say one to thirty is where the industry stands right now, which is amazingly uh, impressive. Uh, think about it; it's uh, it's like one person that covers all the infrastructure needs of a developer team of thirty. This is this is an amazing pro uh, progress co comparing to any previous point of yeah, 10 years time. ago, I would have said that sounds like hell, exactly. uh, but today uh, that's doable. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think the caveat's probably um, that you're not talking about a, an organization with a lot of legacy distributed systems, that sort of thing where automation is difficult and there's a lot of little pockets of different technologies. I mean, that's always a challenge when you've got, you know, that sort of thing, but um I don't know. That, that's just you know my my. I'm just thinking about some of those <clears throat> you know customers that we've that I've worked with with <clears throat> you know that sort of environment where they have so many different you know there's a lot more ops people than what you're describing, but there's also a lot of different pockets of legacy technology that really needs to probably be retired anyway. Yep. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash jobbook. That's devchat.tv slash job book. I think we all just agreed that legacy software sucks. Well, yeah. legacy software sucks. And uh, <laughs> on the other side, the, the bright side of legacy software is that it really never goes away. So if you want to be in this mode and, you know, all this hype is not really for you, all this bullshit about T-shaped people and DevOps, you don't really connect. You know what? Look what happened a month ago when they needed tons of COBOL engineers. So, and you, if you are one of them, you, you definitely can be optimistic that you won't be automated out of your job for pretty much the rest of your life, thanks to legacy software. So I think it's good because people are different and it's good that our industry can cater to each type. But um, obviously, I don't think this podcast is... Is is here to promote this uh, uh, state of mind. Uh, so yeah, I mean it's it's fine if they are the reason why all those systems were never updated and they are in COBOL because they're government. They have literally zero evolutionary pressure. Uh, but this is not where we live, right? So when, when Mozilla cannot 
let itself fall behind uh, Google and the other way around. So this is great. What's a, uh, I know we talked about your uh, talk at Velocity, uh, DevOps patterns and anti-patterns for continuous software updates. What's an anti-pattern that you've seen? I think we've covered a, a few of them, but what, what's one specifically? Yeah, the one that I really love uh, is, uh, is not doing progressive delivery. Well, love is an anti-pattern and obviously don't love when I see it in real life. And um, the, the reason why I'm so fascinating about particular this one is that progressive delivery is something that we learn when we are like eight years old, when our parents show us how to do laundry. Because on every detergent or textile treatment, uh, you will see this warning, always test on a hidden surface first. Remember that? This is progressive delivery. That's exactly that. And we grow up and we completely forget. And now we go to software and we say, well, let's release it for everybody because what can possibly go wrong? And this it worked is like, in the previous stage, so it must work in production too. Well, yes, obviously, because uh, your staging is an exact copy of your production environment, which is obviously which it never not. is. <laughs> right. right and and, and it, it's not even if you think it, it it is but now we see more and more companies that just cannot do a, a parity between uh, between staging and prod it's impossible right be, just because of the sheer amount of data there is no way in the world google can do a staging environment which will be representing exactly what they have in production can they Right, so I mean, it doesn't make sense, and 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 we see it obviously not only for Google, but for for the more and more companies in the world. And this, so and how do we, how do we create a hidden surface then, if we can't? Oh, you just completely do that. You just give up on this idea. You just say, okay, staging as we knew it, as exact copy of production is dead. We don't have it anymore, and now we need to come with other ideas. And the other ideas is progressive delivery. Let's test it in production. But let's be careful because people, the, the term I love the most in all the progressive delivery um, ecosystem is blast radius. It's brilliant because it's exactly that. We're going to test in production and there will be casualties. So let's try to minimize the blast radius and make as less people as possible suffer, right? So I, I love this analogy, it's brilliant. And then when you think about that, you, you think about blast radius, you think about people are going to suffer, you start making the smart moves. You do the canary deployment and you observe it and you know how to roll it back and you have feature flags that you can disconnect the features that misbehave. Suddenly the empathy of thinking about blast radius brings tons of good practices from real life from the laundry that your uh, parents teach you how to do to a, to our world as well. Right, you can only play Call of Duty so many times uh, before you actually are in a live fire situation. And then exactly. when you are in a live fire situation, your body will start to learn things. Um, yep. And uh, you know, I've had some colleagues who were actually in the service, I mean, I think for that service, um, but I've never been, my, my live rounds are on production deploys, right? And so I, I totally empathize with that and I agree with that. Um, I think we're getting close to the end of our, 
our episode here now. Do we want to start talking about picks? Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. Let's just ask uh, the whole panel. Is there anything else anyone would like to make sure they ask or I get in before we move on to picks? Good question. All right. I mean, I, 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 last week we were having such a good time. I said, let's do another one. So maybe we'll have group back again. And that'd be uh, fantastic. Pick another topic. So that'd be great. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and move on to picks then. I'll go ahead and give mine. Uh, so it is a uh, very volatile time in the world right now at the time we're recording it, this. And I don't know if it's going to be better by the time you listen to this. Um, but what has helped me calm down enough so I can sleep at night uh, and function, uh, there's two podcasts I've been listening to. So I find that connecting my intellectual mind with something, not too much, but something just enough for me to focus, helps me relax. So the two podcasts I've been listening to, one is called the Supermassive Podcast. Uh, that is out of the Royal Astronomical Society in Britain. It's a monthly podcast, explores different astrophysics topics, uh, connects it to kind of popular astronomy. The last episode, they were exploring exoplanets. I uh, love that one. The other one, uh, we were talking about a bit about this uh, before we started recording. So I am finally living in a place where I can have a garden. And I have been really enjoying uh, making things grow in containers. So I found another podcast, uh, also from Britain, uh, for the Royal Holder the Royal Horticultural Society. Uh, so I will put those in the show notes. If you're looking for something to, to give you just a little bit of inspiration, just a little bit of stimulation so you can calm down uh, with what's going on in the world, highly recommend them. Uh, Tyler, over to you. Sure. Um, as I mentioned before, I usually have a pick that, that pops in my head in the middle of the episode. And this week, um, it's not about the shark was, was one of those picks. And um so it's about thinking, thinking not about the problem, but thinking about creative solutions and use your creativity. Um, another thing that I've been branching into recently on a technical level is getting into Python myself. So traditionally, I'm more of a Rubyist and uh, Bash, and, and I've dabbled in Go a little bit for a couple of projects but uh, at where I'm working now, a lot of people are in Python, and I, I see the value of getting into the language that is the lingua franca, you know, the default in the company. And so uh, being able to work with other people appeals to me. So, and I do like to learn new things. So as I've been searching for tutorials and different things, I've bumped into the website, uh, realpython.com. They have a lot of great tutorials about Python. Um, they even have a uh, page you go type memberships and uh, courses and different things like that. But I, I've really been enjoying learning some Python uh, tricks and, and tips from them. So I'd like to plug, plug them in here in the podcast. So thanks, Jeffrey. Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, just to maybe echo uh, what Nell was saying, you know, just in the craziness that's going on in the world, I know that I found just sort of getting out into my garage and, uh, uh, I've got a workshop in there, do some woodworking and other types of things. Um, and uh, just the last couple of years, I haven't had a lot of time. So I, I've actually been spending the last month or so getting in there and just sort of getting reorganized. And I, I find that uh, just doing that has been really uh, therapeutic, just sort of getting everything in order. You know, you can't get the world in order, at least get your little microcosm in order. And it just like sort of opens the mind a little bit. Um, but one thing I really found, and it's, I, I can't point to any one specifically, but 
there are so many YouTube channels now for anybody who wants to get into any kind of making anything. I mean, from just a several years ago when I was probably much more active um, until now, like it, the, the number of channels has just ballooned. Um, so I guess I'm not, I can't really point to any one or two that specifically, but there is so much good stuff out there. If anybody wants to sort of just start, a, you know, just getting started and wants to start to uh, make whatever it is on their own, plenty of fodder, plenty of, you know, how to's and really great stuff. So highly recommend looking at that. Awesome. Baruch, how about you? Yeah, so um, I uh, since I'm uh, here as, as a guest, I will probably do a bunch of shameless plug, if you don't mind. Go for it. <laughs> right. Two thumbs up. Yeah, so talking about podcasts, uh, my background is actually um, is, is, a, is a podcast, the video podcast that we're doing, which is called The Devil's Speak Easy. And uh, frankly, we're looking for guests so we can do here a little bit positive quiz for pro. And I invite all of you to uh, be on our Devil Speak Easy podcast. We'll talk about that later. Um, so this is a podcast that might be of interest. Uh, we are like, we just got started. We're, I think, like about 11 episodes down. And we interviewed a bunch of very cool people. So uh, I definitely recommend that. Uh, the the two talks that we spoke about, obviously the DevOps patterns and nighttime patterns, um, and the DevOps that scale the Greek tragedy in three acts. Um, I will um, uh, give you both the show notes pages, which which is not only the YouTube but also the slides and all the links to all the material that we refer, which is kind of. A, universe of links by its own and then you traverse for there and then it's 4 a.m and you read about uh, some greek war in the wikipedia or whatever you know how it works um so uh, yeah so so this is um kind of work related um non-work related uh, and 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 having a nice hobby to to uh, to look at i'm into home automation kind of uh, i guess over the normal edge. There are crazier people than me, but I take it to a rather advanced level. Um, so uh, for, for those of you who are looking to get started, this is a very simple to start, but then you go into a rabbit hole. Um, so the colleague of mine that we did the Greek tragedy with, Leonid Golnik, definitely worth having him on the podcast for, for his own merits. Uh, he is a very seasoned uh, um, engineering executive. He is actually good in managing people. So, yeah. Uh, so he lately automated his TV couch to recline when he says the name of his voice assistant. I cannot say this name because it will trigger, but the name of, <laughs> of the assistant and then the TV time did the lights even before, but now it actually reclines the sofa which is a completely new level. So there is, this is a fun activity to take your mind out of what's going on outside the window or inside your computer, but still very, very geeky. So that will be my recommendation, uh, not related to, to the technology that we deal on a daily basis. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on your show. I think all of us would be delighted to uh, be on your show. And thank you, uh, Tyler and Jeff, for uh, joining me on the panel. And thank you, as always, to our listeners. I uh, hope uh, you are all taking care, and we will be back next week. 
Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.